Turn to um, Psalm 23. Psalm 23. So if you have one finger at Psalm 23 and the other, the other finger or bookmark or paper at Mark chapter 6. So if you're there, I'll read Psalm 23, the famous Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And now Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass, on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them as among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is the reading of God's word. So thanks be to God. And let's pray um, a prayer of illumination. God, we, having read your word, we ask God that you would um, illumine our hearts to not only hear, but to listen 
Not only to hear, but to understand. And not just to understand that we might do. That your word would activate our faith and our trust in you. We ask that you do this on this your your day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is a very famous passage. As we're continuing our series on who is Jesus, the life of Christ in the gospel of Mark. The feeding of the, it's usually called the feeding of the 5,000. Um, it's one of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible. It's immortalized in children's Bibles. When I was used to do children's ministry, that became a, a regular lesson in the teaching of the the feeding of the 5,000. It's a very famous story. It's actually included in every uh, New Testament gospel. It's one of the few stories that occurs in all four of the gospels. It's in Mark uh, chapter 6, as we just read. It's also in Matthew 14. It's also in Luke 9. Excuse me, Luke 9. And a very uh, extended version of it is in John chapter, uh, John chapter 6. We're going to focus just here on what Luke presents for us. And it's often called the feeding of the 5,000 because that's the number that's given. Um, but it should be more like 10,000. Stop and think about that. 10,000. So um, the Van Andel almost full. And Jesus feeds all of them. We know that it uh, should be closer to maybe 10,000 because in verse 44, uh, notice at the very end of that passage, and it says, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 Men and the Greek word for men, there's not the generic word for like mankind. It's it's actually adult males, just adult males. So 5000 adult males, we could assume uh, that that number doesn't count the adult women and perhaps the children were there. So um, so just so I like to keep people on their toes, I'm like, I say the feeding of the 10,000 people, are, huh? Because I had children in the Sunday school class, it was 5000. But no, it was a lot more than that. And so what does this passage have to teach us? Today, it's a very familiar passage, but what would it teach us today? Well, I have a couple of things that I'd like for us to uh, to think about this passage. And the first one is uh, this, is that it teaches us about the compassion of Jesus. It teaches us about the compassion of Jesus. And it does it in a couple of ways. The first way is evident um, by the compassion that Jesus demonstrates for his under shepherds. This begins in verse 30. Now, before verse 30, if you were here last week, you'll remember that Jesus had sent his um, uh, or two weeks ago that Jesus had sent. He'd called out among all of his disciples and he called out 12, the 12 of them. And he sent those 12 out two by two into the villages and towns to go and do the ministry that he was doing. Jesus had been proclaiming the kingdom of God. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. He went uh, and proclaimed that people should repent as a consequence. And the disciples did the same thing. Jesus had performed miraculous uh, deeds. He had he brought healing and casted out demons. It said the same thing happened with the 12 that he sent out. And the, those he sent out would get another title called apostle, which means sent out once. 
And so Jesus does that. And then we saw the story about the beheading of John the Baptist in the middle of Jesus sending them out at the beginning of chapter six. And then they return at the end of chapter six and verse 30. And they start to share about all of the things that they had been doing on this ministry um, excursion. Verse 30, and the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Jesus had sent them out to go and kind of multiply his ministry. And they came back with really great great report. The amazing things that they had done. This had kind of echoed um, what he uh, says in the earlier verses, in verses uh, um, 12 and 13. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed them with oil, with, uh, oil many who were sick and he healed them. And that's this kind of Mark's summary description of what was taking place while they were out. And then in verse 30, you have the apostles coming back and saying, this is what was happening. And they were amazed by this. So Jesus's ministry was multiplying through the disciples that he sent out. And Jesus response to them was, that's awesome. Let's double up our efforts. If we keep going and drive harder and harder, we can actually transform the entire Galilee. It's not what he says. He rejoices with them at the work that they had done. But what does he say? He says, great. Now come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Because it says, for many were coming and going, they had no leisure to even eat. The demands of all of the people wanting to know about Jesus and wanting to experience what he was, uh, what he was teaching and what he was offering. The demand was really high. And so the margin of um, rest and relaxation uh, ends up becoming very small for these guys. And so Jesus, on their coming back from this excursion, says, come away and rest. Two times, he says, he takes them to a desolate place. If you have the NIV, it says a, a quiet place. The word is uh, actually Eremos, which is um, the, the desert or the wilderness this word is, been, has occurred already in Mark in several places. John the Baptist is described as the voice who was crying out in the wilderness, the Eremos. And he was baptizing and proclaiming in the wilderness. Jesus, after his baptism, was described as the Spirit, drove Jesus out into the Eremos, into the wilderness, into the isolated, uh, lonely, desert, wasteland, uninhabited area. And this became a regular practice for Jesus. We saw at the end of Mark chapter one, verse 35, Jesus would rise up very early in the morning and while it was still dark and he departed to the Eremos, he would go to this wilderness, this desolate place so that he could be alone and so that he could pray. And so it's interesting is that when the disciples come back, these apostles come back, Jesus does the same thing. He's like, okay, it's time. It's time to go away. It's time to retreat. It's time to take a break. He knew their, their weaknesses. And he knew that this truth that I think that many are starting to, to really kind of understand and embrace. Sometimes we forget. The truth is that there's only so much a person could do physically, right? The body needs to rest. 
In the same way, there's only so much we can do spiritually without our spirits needing some rest. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, he says, come to me all who labor and who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's kind of seems like... um, It seems kind of counterintuitive, but I think it's something that we're starting to realize and recognize. I think you see this uh, illustrated like in sports teams, the the need for uh, for rest and for recovery. Now, working out and practicing makes you better. And so sometimes the thinking is, well, then just keep working out, keep working out, keep practicing, keep practicing. Um, But there comes the point where you have diminishing returns. You have to. Uh, work and recover and rest. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. And maybe that's true for some of us. We just need to, to rest. There are no workaholics for Jesus. So rest for reflection, for meditation, for conversation. This is what Jesus does with his disciples when they return. And it's an example for us, and it models the compassion that he had for his under-shepherds. So we see the compassion of Jesus there for his under-shepherds in one way, and then we also see his compassion for the sheep as well. You see the compassion for his sheep in uh, the immediate verses right, right, after, um, right after he invites his disciples to go away. It says, then the crowd saw where they were going, verse 33. They recognized them. They ran from, on foot from all of the towns, and they got there ahead of the disciples. So their little rest time was actually uh, thwarted by the crowds of people looking for Jesus to perform more miracles or perhaps to hear more of his teaching. They crowded him, and it says uh, in verse 34, and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So he has compassion for the sheep here. And the sheep is referring to the crowds. These crowds were probably perhaps desperate for truth. Maybe they were just hungry. And uh, Mark describes them as being sheep. It's a great picture all throughout the Bible. It's a very fascinating. I would love to have unpacked like the entire uh, imagery of sheep and shepherd throughout the Bible. But let me just give you kind of a, a little glimpse of uh, a little bit about their life and then how it, it kind of manifests itself in the way that this is used as kind of a metaphor. So in the ancient world, in Jesus' day, shepherds would, they would start the day by getting all the sheep together. They would lead the sheep to water and to grazing because in this area of the, um, of the world, it, uh, you, you would think sheep grazing in pastures. You're thinking like green rolling pastures here south of Byron Center, right? It's not like that at all. It's like desert and little tiny shrubs of, of green here and there. 
only a couple of inches of rain a year, and that rain would kind of trickle down into little, you know, troughs. Uh, uh, trough? Is that a word? Troughs? Troughs. <laughs> you know, it would trickle down into like little creeks and streams, and then you would have little tufts of grass growing there. And so the idea of a shepherd just kind of unleashing sh- uh, uh, sheep out into the field and letting them raise, uh, graze is not quite the biblical picture. There was a lot of work involved. You had to kind of steer and guide the sheep to the places where the food was. That's why we read Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me to waters. He leads me to places where we can eat. He leads me to places where we can rest. So they would go and find water for grazing in the in the midday heat. He would find a place for them to lay down and have shade and to rest. He would be on the lookout for wolves or for other dangers. And then at night he would settle them down, kind of tuck them in and to protect them during the sleep. Often they would be up all night. And so this becomes really a great metaphor for the compassion of a shepherd for the sheep. And it becomes a metaphor for leaders throughout the Bible. The helplessness of the sheep really does kind of explain uh, and illustrate the the character and compassion of the shepherd. Think of Moses. We often think of Moses as the one who goes up on the top of Mount Sinai, comes back with the the two tablets, with the Ten Commandments. Think of him talking with uh, coming to the Lord and having to take off his sandals from the burning bush. But we often miss, what is he doing at that point? He was a shepherd working for his father-in-law. He was shepherding sheep. As a matter of fact, uh, the psalmist, Psalm 77, says this. I think it's, it's pretty amazing. I should have put these on the slides. But if you'll just listen and you want to look this up later, you can. This is Psalm 77, verse 20, where the psalmist says, You, referring to the Lord, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Moses was a real life shepherd, but you have taken Moses and now made him shepherd over your people. The similar description is used for um, King David. Remember before David faces kids, who does David face? Giant, Goliath. Do you guys remember what he was doing right before then? He was shepherding a sheep. Until his father says, hey, I want you to go take some food to your brothers who are on the battlefield. So David was an actual real life shepherd. But when the Lord called David to be king over Israel, he uses these These terms, this imagery of shepherding the people as a metaphor for his leadership and care and compassion. I love this. So Psalm 77 was for Moses. Psalm 78 in verses 70 and 72 says this. He, talking about the Lord, he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. And from following the nursing ewes, he brought them to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Could give many other examples like this, but of the Lord taking real life shepherds and then turning them metaphorically to shepherds and leaders over over God's people. 
And so I love that picture of God's people being sheep and the leaders of God's people being shepherds. But sometimes throughout Israel's history, the leaders over God's people as shepherds were really bad shepherds. They were devouring the sheep. A couple of hundred years before this, we see this described for us by Ezekiel. It's from the Lord himself. And, if, and I would ask you to turn here to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel, one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. So it's kind of near the end of the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 34. And notice the heading there in, in the ESV. It says the prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Uh oh. Verse 1 of chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me, me meaning Ezekiel. Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth. With none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand. And put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. That they may not be food for them. He goes on to illustrate more about how he is going to come himself. And is going to shepherd his people. The rest of that chapter is pretty amazing. I encourage you to read that this week. So the judgment, there was a judgment by God here through Ezekiel to the leaders over Israel because they were neglecting their duty to do what they were supposed to do as shepherds. Notice he stays consistently in that metaphor of shepherds. I think the same was happening in Jesus' day with the religious leaders over Israel in Jerusalem. They too... We're acting the same way that the leaders were in Ezekiel's day. And so that's why I think that Mark includes these, these words 
that Jesus sees the crowd in verse 34 because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew adds another little phrase here that I think is is very interesting. Um, Matthew's version in Matthew chapter 9, he says that they were uh, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus looks at all of this crowd of people who had been abused and devoured by the religious leaders of that day, and he has compassion on them. You've heard me say this word before. The Greek word there is splankna, right? It's the word for your intestines. Like the, the aching in your guts when you have compassion, the, the emotional connection to somebody in their need or your affections for them is described as your, your intestines, your bowels, and it's used for compassion. Jesus is the good shepherd. John chapter 10, Jesus says, you know, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they have life and they have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, but who who does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and then leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says again. I care for my sheep. I am the one who is coming now to shepherd my people. And the writer of Hebrews, in the great benediction that closes the end of um, that letter to the Hebrews, says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of his eternal covenant, equip you with everything that you may do his will. He's not just a good shepherd. He's the, the great shepherd. Jesus is the perfect shepherd for his people. He cares for his people. And so we see here, even even before the food is distributed, we have a demonstration of the compassion of Jesus for you. So this feeding of the 10,000 teaches us about the compassion of Jesus, but it also teaches us about the deity of Jesus. The deity of Jesus. Now, some, some, there are some interpreters. I always find it fascinating the way different people interpret this passage. And I do sometimes like to go and see the inventive ways uh, that uh, some people who don't believe that the Bible is inspired. They, they like the Bible, but they just don't believe it's inspired. They like some of the moral lessons that the Bible teaches. They just don't think it's the uh, breathed out word of God. And so it's always interesting to see the gymnastics that they would do in t- interpreting this passage. And I've, I've seen a couple of interpreters who will look at this passage and say, isn't this a triumph of the power of the human community? Right? Jesus' selfless example, it inspires a spirit of generosity from the crowd. And that um, 
that alone is sufficient for meeting the needs of everyone. Right? So if you don't believe in miracles and you don't believe uh, that the God who created the universe can speak and write those words down for us in scripture, you'd have to find some other way of illustrating this as like a moralistic tale, right? That it didn't, Jesus didn't really multiply the food out. There was, as they're spreading it around, people were like, oh, I've got some other food and I, you know, we could contribute. And at the end, there's a whole bunch left over. Yay, humanity, right? That's not it. No. The scenario here, the way it's depicted, it's, it's impossible without a supernatural multiplication of food. It's impossible unless there's a supernatural multiplication of the food. And all throughout the Old Testament, the Lord God alone is considered the source of all food. Right at creation. Behold, God says, I have given you every plant yielding seed that on the face of the earth and every tree that has seed in its fruit and you shall have them for food. God gave the food. And I'm grateful that several chapters later in chapter nine, he goes from just fruit to saying every moving thing that lives shall be food for you as I gave you the green plants. Now I give you everything. Carnivores unite. Yay. I've got scriptural verses to back this up. The psalmist, Psalm 104, you cause the grass to grow for livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. God, the Lord God alone is the the one who brings forth food. The Lord is gracious and merciful. This is Psalm 111. He provides food for those who fear him and he remembers his covenant forever. And Paul in uh, Acts 14 says, Yet God did not leave himself without a witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God alone is the author or the, the one source who brings and provides food. It's recognized in Jesus' Lord's Prayer. Give us our day, our day, daily bread. You meet our day-to-day food requirements on a daily basis. With that in mind, you have Jesus here multiplying food miraculously. He's doing what only the Lord God in the Old Testament is credited with doing. We think of this as an amazing, miraculous work of Jesus, and that's true. But we sometimes forget to connect this. Oh, he's he's multiplying food. Only God does that. And so this great shepherd who sees his sheep harassed and helpless, hungry, and he feeds them. It's the Lord Jesus who leads, who guides, who shepherds his people, and he's the one who feeds and satisfies them. And this pictures uh, Jesus' deity. He alone is God who can do that. So it teaches us about the compassion of Jesus. It teaches us about the deity of Jesus. Um, but it also teaches us one last thing. And it teaches us about the failure of the disciples to realize what Jesus can do. These poor guys. All throughout The rest of Mark, for the next several chapters, it's one incident after another. I won't recount them all. Um, 
but you, you have these guys just failing to grasp really who Jesus is and what he's, what he's going to do. Not just the crowds don't know. It's not just the religious leaders. And it's the, the disciples and the apostles. They get a glimpse. They know who he is, but yet they fail to really fully grasp all that he is and all that he can do. And so they respond, by the way, in, when it, they see the need of the people, um, you got to give them a little bit of credit. They, they respond positively. They look and they see people's needs, their need for food. And so they make a suggestion. They come to Jesus in verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And Jesus responds, you feed them. You do it. And they're perplexed. So they go from this really positive thing. Oh, the people need something. Jesus, let's you, you do send them away so that they could go find food for themselves. Jesus says, no, you do it. And they're n- notice their verse, the rest of verse uh, 37. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Now, this is said with a little bit of skepticism, and you can kind of understand pragmatically the reason why they would would say this. This is a very reasonable concern. There's a lot of people, 10,000 people, and there's not enough food. But they forget who their master is. They forget what Jesus can do. And so Jesus says, well, what do you have? How many loaves? We have five loaves, two fish. And then there, Jesus blesses it and then sends it out and it multiplies this bread and fish for everybody to eat. I put it, put it this way. Jesus is not limited by minimal resources. One commentator put it... Um, Put it this way, and I think this was great. When we face difficulties and challenges, we should look beyond our own circumstances. By the way, any of you facing difficulties or challenges? Any of you? <laughs> Can I get an amen? I see, wave your hanky in the air, you know. When we, when we face difficulties and challenges, we should look beyond our own circumstances and ask, what could the creator God accomplish here? Oh, man. What could God accomplish here? It's easy to kind of, you know, look at the disciples. Oh, are those silly disciples. But I'm one of the silly disciples. I'd be like, you got to send them away. <laughs> Jesus, go send them away to go get their own food. You feed them. We don't have the resources. And Jesus must just kind of eye roll emoji, right? We don't, I'm, I'm the son of God, the Lord of all creation. All things were created through me. And yet you don't, you don't have enough for what I'm asking you to do. When we face difficulties and challenges, we should look beyond our own circumstances and ask, what 
could the creator God accomplish here? I encourage you to write that question. What could the creator God accomplish here on a note card? Put it on your mirror, bathroom mirror in the morning. On your coffee maker. On your microwave. On your refrigerator. What could the creator God accomplish here? This commentator goes on. While God does not call us to be naive or reckless in our Christian life, he does call us to live by faith, believing that his will and purpose will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So a couple of questions for us to think about. What challenges are you facing right now that seem to be beyond your ability to solve? What what challenges are you facing where you're looking at the challenges and you're looking at your earthly available resources to attempt to meet the challenges? And it seems like that doesn't quite add up. What seems beyond your ability to resolve? That when you when you encounter that it's at that moment that we need to ask that question, wait, what could creator God accomplish here? If God is calling me to this thing that I'm doing, what and I'm lacking the resources that I can see available to meet that, what might the creator God accomplish here to bridge that gap? It's what Jesus does. The disciples look at the human resources and the material resources and go, it's not possible. But Jesus does the impossible. Here's the second question. How would it be different to look at your challenges and ask, what could Jesus accomplish here? If Jesus could multiply fish and could multiply bread so that the disciples could serve them when he told them to, so that the disciples could minister to the crowd that he commands them to to feed, then what could he do in your situation? What could he do in our situation? What could the creator God accomplish here? Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, as ever and always, are grateful for your word. We're grateful, God, for the timelessness of your word. Even though written in a different culture and a different time completely across the world, the human struggle that's present in it is, is ever present and always there. God, we thank you that you've given the disciples as those who we can identify with, who love Jesus and want to follow Jesus and and yet still fail to grasp truly who he is. God, help us to 
to realize more and more who Jesus is and what he can do. Help us to realize what he could do by realizing the power that he has. That he truly is fully God and fully man. That this multiplying of food is, is, a, is an illustration of the fact that he could do what only the Lord God in the Old Testament could do. And so God, help us to know more about his power as God. And God, we thank you that we also are taught about his compassion. That we, like sheep without a shepherd, would be weak and helpless, but that you sent your son, Jesus, as the good shepherd to lead us and guide us and feed us. And help us, God, as sheep, to hear his voice and follow where he calls. We ask that you would do all of that in and through us. In Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, amen and amen. Would you stand for our closing benediction this morning? Just a reminder, the offering box is over uh, on the information table. And, um, and if you have uh, any prayer requests that you, know, that you would like to uh, have someone pray for you, I, I'd be glad to, to meet you up here and pray for you before you go. Um, now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we share in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.